Welcome to Future Focus, the UK at Expo podcast series, where throughout the world's greatest show at Expo 2020 Dubai, we'll be celebrating the best of the UK's creativity, innovation and culture, with special guests offering exclusive insight into ways we can innovate for a shared future. In this episode, host Rachel Everard talks to Libby Jackson, Human Exploration Programme Manager at the UK Space Agency. Libby has an incredible story to tell, not only as a flight director on space missions, but more importantly, as the Programme Manager for Human Spaceflight and Microgravity. Her conversation with Rachel explores many issues, including discussing why, in the age of robotics and AI, it's still vital that we put humans into space. Libby, it's a great pleasure to be talking to you today on on this podcast titled Taking Great Steps for Humankind. I'm really excited to learn more about your experience in space um, and your enthusiasm for the space industry and exploration. I've heard that you got inspired by space at a really early age, seven, I think. Just tell me a little bit about what really inspired you so young. I don't remember not liking space. So so the story that, that I will tell that happened seven, eight, somewhere in that sort of primary school thing is just how I know that space has always been something I've been fascinated by. And I can't tell you why, um, but the, the I've still got it at home. When I was seven, eight, might have been nine, but that sort of, you know, later primary school time, we were set some homework, uh, one school holiday, uh, where we had to go and produce a travel brochure for somewhere that we wanted to visit one day. And what our teacher had in mind was that we would wander off uh, to a travel agent. In those days, this was you know nearly 40 years ago now, uh, you, can, um, you could go and get brochures that had nice pictures of sunny holidays in and so on. Um, and we were supposed to cut out some pictures and write some stuff about why we wanted to go somewhere. And they thought we would go for Australia or America or Italy or, you know, China, some some far flung place. And I decided that I wanted to visit Mars. So I um, didn't cut anything out, but I drew pictures. I imagined that Mars had been terraformed, that there was a hotel on it where you could choose the arrangement of your room. Um, and, and I drew all these pictures um, and I, I liked it so much that I've kept it all these years. So it was uh, even something then, it was something very special to me. Uh, so, yeah, I, I just have always been fascinated by space. But it took me a long time to realise and work out that something that I was fascinated with and interested in had job opportunities in it, uh, particularly job opportunities in the UK. Uh, and that that took uh, many years to happen. Uh, but it's certainly my my interest in space has been lifelong. It's a fantastic story. And I think for me, it's so important that young people are inspired by STEM at such an early age. And it's proven that it's actually at seven, eight, nine is the exact time to find an interest in in space or engineering. And do you think obviously that really followed you through the rest of your career and your your career choices that you made from such an early age? And how important do you think that was for your development and your career? And how do you think other young people can learn from that experience? I think when I look back, what was important for me was that my interest in science and space and maths, I like maths and and all those subjects, 
um, was not just encouraged, but made to be normal. And I wasn't um, told within my family or within school that I shouldn't be doing it because it was a boy's subject. Uh, and I grew up in a family, three sisters, um, you know, and, and uh, my mum was only a child. I didn't have brothers and I don't know, you know, let's get my mum on the podcast and ask her why, why it was that, that that was there. But I just was never made to feel that this was something I shouldn't be doing. I mean, I, I think, or, or no more so than anybody who was perhaps, um, you know, like those subjects. But anyway, I was supported and that has been what's helped me, I think, through it and, and made me feel able uh, to carry on. I went on to an all-girls school and when people look back and go, what were the important things and so on and what helped you? I think that was true as well. And I didn't understand or appreciate it at the time. And I wish it hadn't had to be that way. But I see my younger uh, nieces now, and nieces and nephews and, and all the young people I know in my life um that though there are still today people who, who will say no these are for girls and boys and if anything it feels like it's got worse with um marketing and and pink and blue and oh, we can talk for hours about that but um I remember very clearly uh, one of my nieces um so it seems to have similar interests to me and she got to school and, and very quickly started learning that her interests in cars and football and engineering and, and, and maths and all these things were boy subjects. And that sort of set off our, you could see it in this whole chain of her mind and her attitude and, and attitude to life and trying to want to fit in. And, and because, uh, yeah, she started being told, no, these, these are for boys and there's differences between girls and boys. And, and oh, to come back to your question, I think it was just important that, that growing up it, my interests in, in science were supported within, in my family and within my school. And um, I was given the freedom to do what I enjoyed doing, which for me was science. For other people, it's other, and, you know, other things. I think that's the important thing in life for everybody is give people the freedom to find themselves. That's such an important message. And I, I don't think we can underestimate the role of, of role models of the people around us, whether that's parents or teachers and, and giving us opportunities or, or not quelling kind of our enthusiasm for subjects. It must have been very interesting going from such a, a female kind of dominated upbringing in an all-girls school, or, um, you said three sisters, to then into quite a male-dominated industry. I suspect, I suspect space is quite male-dominated, um, like engineering is. Uh, yeah, not and not just the industry, but before that, I wanted to go off and study physics. I liked physics at school, and I uh, wound up in a physics course uh, at Imperial College, where um, there must have been a handful of girls in the two hundred or so people in this class. There may not have been as many as ten. I, I don't know the statistics, and I don't remember. But I think that for me is also interesting when I look back. Yeah, I was a girl. Yeah, there were men everywhere. And it just I just cracked on with it and, and got on with it. And um, when I uh, was in my first job as a graduate, I was certainly uh, on a, a site surrounded uh, by men everywhere. And um, uh, it was a military site. You know, there were people there. And, and, and I've gone through. And again, you'll look back and you go, was it me? Was it my upbringing? Is it naivety? But I just cracked on and honestly uh in the what 20 something years of my career now 
I, I have regularly still sit in meeting rooms where there are men everywhere and I just get on with it. And I don't really ever get the sense that people are looking at me and go, oh, you're not supposed to be here. Now, I, I like to think and I hope that is a reflection on how far the industry has gone forward. And I think that it is an important message to everybody out there. Absolutely. There are problems. There still are. The world is learning. We are not perfect yet. But I think as a whole, people accept women in, in, in engineering now. And, and one of the, the challenges is, is to dispel the myth still that um, science and engineering places are places where women aren't welcome and so on. I say, I'm not, I'm not for a minute going to pretend it's all perfect. I, there will be many story people who can tell stories where it hasn't been. Um, but that has been my experience. And I think I've also just not responded to any of that vibe. You know, I've had the confidence. I'm in this room. I've been given the job. I'm here. I'm going to contribute. And and just and just got on with it. Now, you, you may have never made it yet to Mars, um, but you did make it to the flight director um, role. And, and I don't think anyone could have told you that you weren't supposed to be in the room if you were in charge. Um, can you just tell me a little bit about your experience in that role and some of the challenges or Oh, kind of real key moments for you in that role? I went off to university. I, my dream was to work in, in mission operations and in mission control. And, and that had been sparked by books and reading and, and visits and experiences when I was at school. And it was something that for a long time I didn't think was achievable, but I kept it there as this mad, crazy dream to kind of steer my my career choices as, as I went along. And so I, I got a graduate job in, in uh, mission operations because I stuck on my CV that I wanted to work in, in mission operations. Uh, and then I led me to Munich to Europe's control uh, center for the International Space Station. And uh, I, I was a, a flight controller and a, and a flight director. And the first thing to know is that it is just like the movies. People would say to me, what's your job like? What do you do? Like, well, have you seen Apollo 13? Yeah. I say it really is like that. It, it's, I say it's less glamorous. We're not going to the moon. But we actually get to work alongside the crew up in space 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, helping them to carry out the most fantastic science experiments that benefit all of us every day are helping to uh, further our understanding and to solve problems. That's what makes me tick. That's that's my skill. That's what I like doing is solving problems. And and that's what um, life in, in mission control is about. You know, every day is different. You don't know what's going to come along. And yeah, you solve the problem, move it on and keep going. And it, it was absolutely fabulous and, and truly my dream job and then people go so you left and you've carried on and, and, and you've done other things and really what happened was you know life happened and and you know there were there were new and exciting challenges to move on to um but yeah mission operations is a fantastic place to work i think one of the things people don't know is that it is a young person's place to work most people in in mission operations in mission control are young, they're graduates. That was true back in the sort of famous days of, of going to the moon when the average age in that control room was something like 27. I, I get the stat wrong. But it is still the case now. And so for any young people listening who, who watch those movies and go, oh, I fancy doing that, but I can't or I haven't got the skills, you need a technical mind and you need the ability to problem solve. You can't do a degree in mission operations. You have to go and learn on the job. Um, and, and it's a great place to, to, to go work.
you talked there a little bit around problem solving. Um, and one thing I'm really interested in is what we can learn from space that we can apply to Earth. And particularly when we look at the climate crisis that we're facing and the need to, to reduce our global greenhouse gas emissions. What do you think around how we can learn from our, your experience of space and our collective understanding of space that we can really bring back to Earth, I guess? There are so many different ways to answer that question um, for, from the basic statistics that we have to go to space to learn about Earth. There's some statistic that it's about 50% of the, the types of measurement that we need um, to understand the Earth's atmosphere, climate change. They can only be made from space. So we have to go to space to send those spacecraft up there to look back on Earth to, to understand what's happening in the atmosphere, what's happening to CO2 levels, uh, the weather, all, all these things. So, you know, fundamentally, without the data from space, we won't know about Earth and, and be able to make those those decisions and those actions that, that we need to do to, 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 to change uh, where, where we appear to be heading. Um, and then there are the experiences that astronauts bring, um, them going and, and, and the videos, the photographs that they bring back and inspire people. And anybody who has been to space talks about looking back at the Earth, seeing that it is a single, amazing, precious, delicate marble, colourful in this blackness of space with this teeny tiny wafer thin atmosphere that's protecting everything, all of life that we've ever known. <laughs> and, and you look at it and go, oh, this is precious and this is what's keeping us alive and we need to protect it and look after it. And, and that understanding and realisation that, that space, whether, whether it's astronauts going up there or, or spacecraft going up there, um, shifts our understanding as humanity. And again, it's important for us all to, to see it. One of my favourite photographs from space is the one that the Galileo spacecraft that was on its way out into the solar system to Jupiter. I think suddenly I'm going to go, I'm questioning my own thing, edit that out. But uh, it was out on its way out into the solar system and it turned back and it took a photograph of the Earth hanging with the moon in the same shot. And you've got this amazing photo of, you know, what we see, we see the moon in the sky as this kind of lit um, present. And you've got the Earth there hanging in space and you just go start understanding the scales of it. Fantastic. So there's that. And, but then on a more practical level, space and, and sending anything into space, particularly sending humans into space, forces us to think in new and different ways. Because the minute you put anything into space, um, you are forced to shrink it. It's really tricky to get stuff into space, uh, really energy intensive so you want to minimise the amount of space you've got. You've only got so much energy. You've got to rely on solar power coming along. So how are you going to do that? So it already forces you into engineering things that you just wouldn't have bothered to think about on Earth because you didn't have those constraints. And when you put those constraints on a challenge, you find new ways of doing things. And we see technology come back. We are finding out new ways of recycling. Uh, water by going into space we're getting new uh, materials that are helping us more efficient things you know, solar arrays solar panels that you know now are going to change the world and energy came from space because that was where we went and uh, sorted the power out the imaging sensors that we have in our phones every day came as a result of um, space technology working these things out finally i look at it and go well we, what can we learn from the ways we work 
to apply things to new challenges. And I think what I look back on how we do things in the space industry and how we've done it in history is that when there is a clear need challenge to do something with political will behind it and um, the right brains being involved and a need to do something, you know, you, you can make it happen. Anything's possible. I bet you look back at what's happened in the last two years with, with the pandemic and, and how we've suddenly shifted uh, vaccines from, from technology that was there, but no one was really picking it up to, to now needing it. And, and that's what, what happens when, when you engineer things in space. It's, I'm sure you find it's what happening happens in your world of engineering. It's just the way engineering works and you just have to apply it to a problem. I think... What's really interesting is the current kind of commercialization of space exploration that we're seeing and adventure space travel almost and thinking that perhaps maybe if you talked about inspiring to protect the planet, perhaps maybe some of that goodness will come through those explorations. But maybe I'm really interested in what you think is next for space. Kind of what are you excited about in the next 10 years of space exploration? For me, what I am excited about uh, actually is the return to the moon which is happening. Um, There are contracts in place. There are uh, pieces of hardware being built now uh, for the Lunar Gateway, which is going to be a a research space station, tiny. If the International Space Station is a five-bed flat, we're talking about a Bijou studio uh, out in the kind of distant reaches around the moon. But we are going to see that. We're going to see humans return to the moon and the UK is going to play its part as Europe's going to be a much more international endeavor and it was the Apollo missions and the stories of those that inspired me to I, I think to, you know, to get into space you say what where did it come from but I, I, and I don't know but it was certainly those stories that I read that, that that got me interested into space and I from a personal perspective I, I can't believe we're going to see it happen again. You know, I was born nine years after the last moon landing. And when I was growing up, that was ancient history. You know, that the, the moon landings were a distant time away and now they're 60 years away and a lifetime away and, and we're down to just a handful of people who walked on the moon. And to to, to share that, to, to keep exploring, um, to, to see all that happen with modern day technology, with 4K images being being back with Twitter live from the surface of the moon, you know, Facebook live, Instagram live, all of that. I just get excited because I think, wow, and we're going to capture imagination. But of course, we're also going to discover new things. We're going to learn about the moon. We're going to discover new technologies. And there's, there's a lot of discussion at the minute about, quite rightly, why are we doing that? Why should we be doing that? You know, when we've got the, the climate crisis and so on. Exploration costs a lot less than people think it does. That's not cheap, but it's not um, not expensive. That The cost to UK taxpayers for everything we do in exploration. So we're talking about astronaut missions, the science that happens, the Mars rovers that are being built here. Um, much more besides is one pound per person per year. It's nothing. And we get so much from it. To me, that challenge of, of returning to the moon and what we'll learn from that and, and how we'll develop new technologies that will help make us more sustainable, that will make the space industry better, which we all rely on every day. That's what I'm excited to see. Who could not be excited about the thought of 4G Instagram Live from the moon?
you talked a little bit right there around the UK space industry, and that's something that I've seen really grow just in the time that kind of I've been aware of of UK space. And but I think one of the things that's really clear to me, thinking about space, is is the need for collaboration um, with different. You, you talked about the European kind of agency and the um, International Space Station. How much do you think are ingenuity and innovation for space exploration has to come through that that collaboration space is big you, you can't do it on your own um there are you know lots of different ways of collaborating and partnering um but the international space station is you know a great partnership between the the 22 you know member states of the european space agency and america and russia and japan and canada so there's you know, nearly 30 countries there there's been over a hundred different scientists from over a hundred different countries that have have taken part in that. Space is something that we all rely on every single day. And space, you know, the from the satellites that are up there, the communications technology that happens, the imagery that comes back, our weather forecasting, um, the the materials and and the science that's being discovered in the space station. This is a unique laboratory that that will bring results back that will scatter into society in new and unexpected ways and and, and go somewhere. But the point is, yeah, that, that space has to be collaborative to do the big projects. You know, that, that there are things we do in the UK and we do them very well, but but to do uh, the big things has to be collaborative. It's going to be true for for for, for other challenges um, that we're talking about as well. You always learn things from working with people with different viewpoints, different perspectives, different cultures. Um, Some of my favorite times were working um, abroad and meeting people from around the world and opening my eyes to to the different ways of doing things. So, um, yeah, we're very proud of our international collaborations. We're very happy to keep working with everybody from all around the world and we we see the results. I think one of the things that's clear is the role of technology and innovation in supporting space exploration. So in a, in a world where digitalization, AI, robotics are becoming increasingly part of our day-to-day lives and I'm sure have a very important role to play in space exploration, what, how important do you think it is that it's still humans that are in space? That's a very good question and one that's right to, to be looked at. I mean, lots of what we do in space generally is is not got humans in it. The vast majority of it has. We are relaying data um, all over the place. Uh, we're looking at doing automated manufacturing in space that that has no humans involved. Uh, but what humans bring to the equation are, on places like the International Space Station is is problem solving, real time thinking, ability to to go and um, you know look at something um, and and do things quickly. Uh, and we have over 200 experiments happening uh, on the International Space Station at any one time. Most of those are being monitored by people on the ground. Um, they're being automated. But when things go wrong, uh, we are much quicker. Where we can send an astronaut in to, to help sort it out and, and so on. Uh, when we follow our human instinct to explore and we, we return to the moon and, and one day go on to Mars, uh, and all the science and, and technology innovations that those will bring, it will be humans who who can survey the landscape, who can spot the rock that their intuition just goes, I, that's the one that, that we need to go and look at. That's the thing that looks out of place. And humans share the story back 
with everybody. You've got astronauts who go and talk to school children and open their eyes to the excitement of science and technology and and let them know that it's it's an exciting role and industry to, to get involved in, not just space, but but all of engineering. And we live in a world where science and technology underpin our everyday lives. Right now, I am talking to you through a microphone, down the internet, through a video call on the other end of it. Every single one of those things is coded, it's developed, it's designed, there's technology in all of it. And we need people to keep doing these things. And that's that's where the two parts of it um, uh, come together. The other part of the equation on the International Space Station is that we do research on the astronauts. When humans go into space, they essentially get old pretty quickly. There's more to it than that. But their bones get weaker, their muscles uh, get weaker, their bodies change in ways. And by understanding those processes... We understand how the human body works. That, that's benefiting us all um, uh, by understanding aging and so on. And so we learn things as well just by, by, by humans being there. Um, so there's, there's lots of different reasons. And the answer always is that the two work best side by side and, and we'll do it together. And, and that's how we'll find the right ways. I've heard, Libby, that you ran the London Marathon dressed as an astronaut simultaneously to Tim Peake running it in, in space. I'm a runner. I, I've never quite managed a marathon yet, but I think a lot of people in the UK certainly have been inspired by Tim, um, seen his his trips and exploits. Kind of, Who has inspired you, though? Oh, that's a jolly good question. I, I really struggle to, to answer that because there have been so many people you know the, the the people I work with day to day through my career the, the managers the mentors the, the people I've sort of seen and, and gathered I find that a really hard question to answer people ask me that just lots of people life you know and and to start singling anyone out just it's just that tapestry of life I'm really interested, and you talked at the start about how it is just like the movies. Hopefully, not too much like Apollo 13. Um, but kind of, I'm really interested. What's your best story from space? Again, so many. I mean, the whole of things. One of the things that will stay with me was was the the night that, um, or the day, the whole day that that Tim uh, blasted off to the start of his mission. I was in the science museum with with three thousand school children who were cheering and whooping as, as he blasted off into space, and I had the privilege of of seeing all of that and and seeing the excitement. And Helen Sharman was there, and and I, I did some interviews with Helen, and I had to pinch myself going, I'm here with the first British person in space, first British astronaut watching Tim head off, you know, handing on the, the, the baton to the next person, being in the middle of it all. How did me, from my little seven-year-old, you know, dreaming of, of being on Mars self one day, get to do all of that? In mission control, the, the joy of, of working with everyone in space, it, it was always great fun, actually, when things go wrong. It's what you live for. Um, it's, there, there were some days where, you know, it, it was difficult, it was challenging, but I... I like a challenge and I like problem solving. All sorts of different memories. But but that that it, it wasn't in mission control, but that one that that day and just seeing it all and, and being a part of it. I, I grew up in a country where human spaceflight wasn't a thing. The the UK government for many years was very clear that they didn't want to invest in human spaceflight. They didn't see the economic returns in it. 
So to, I, you know, it was just, it was something I didn't think was possible. And I think that's an important message to get out to young people. You never know what the future is going to hold. Just because something seems impossible now doesn't mean it's not going to in the future. Don't let go of those, those mad, crazy dreams. Because here I am, having grown up in a country that didn't do human spaceflight, having a chat with you about how I've done all sorts of fantastic things in human spaceflight over the last 20 years in the UK. Libby, I think a lot of people can learn from your career and your experience. What would you say to someone that's looking to get involved with space? I would say no matter your age, whether you're a young person at school, whether you're listening to this somewhere in the middle of your career, you know, thinking what's next for me, is there's a job for you in the space industry. Um, I think actually the answer is there's a job for you in any industry that, that you can think of, because I'm sure that like many others, but certainly in the space industry, we are a complete industry. We have the astronauts at the very top of the pyramid who, who were there, sort of, you know, the, the, the beacon that the people know about. But underneath them, we have engineers, we have designers, there are lawyers, there are accountants, we have people who do communications and design, um, you've got people who run the offices. You can get involved in the space industry and we employ over 40,000 people, uh, well over 40,000 people in the UK now, but it's growing. We need the skills to come uh, get involved. And so there are opportunities there right across the country from from the the spaceports that are being developed up in northern Scotland and down in Cornwall and in other places across the country to hubs that we've got all around the country. We're we're a very um, uh, well spread across there. And then the industry is worldwide and, and there are opportunities there. And um, just you know, don't be afraid and don't ever think that, that space isn't for you. If it's something that excites you and interests you, come find a career in it. Thank you so much, Libby. I think you're a fantastic example of having a dream and, and grasping for it and taking it. And it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Rachel. It's been, it's been marvellous. And uh, yeah, thank you for having me on the podcast. Thanks for listening to Future Focus, the UK at Expo podcast series. Look out for more podcasts in the series or subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. And if you want to stay up to date with all things UK Pavilion, links to our social media channels can be found in the episode description.